The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It's the Enviro Show here with me, Nancy Richards, together with Rob Parkin and Kim Winter, and it's the Green Green Show here on SAFM. Well, let me tell you what we've got lined up on the show this evening. We're going to start off with the National Waste Conference, which has just finished in Johannesburg. We'll be chatting to Redisa Director Stacey Davidson to find out what's been going on there, what's been discussed. And uh, Stacey is with Redisa. That's the Recycling and Economic Initiative of South Africa. So we'll find out more about that, too. And then we'll have another in our four-part Edu Info series. I think you could call it. It's Happy Kambule of Project 90 by 2030 talking to us tonight on their policy programme and on the questions around climate change. Who believes it? Who doesn't? What is it? In our forage feature, we're scouring the pans to find out about salt. That's with Samantha Skyring, who makes salt her business. And we'll get some understanding on the sterilisation of insects. That's in our uh, sporadic bugs feature. We'll be chatting to Nando Bard of Fruitfly Africa. And finally, to close, Growing Paper, we'll be talking to Nanita Knopsen, and uh, she'll be telling us all about the paper that she is, well, the paper that she is growing, quite literally. And if you'd like to call us at any stage, you're welcome to do that. The number is 0892 102010. Otherwise, you can pop us a message on Facebook or email. Facebook, The Enviro Show on SAFM, and email is enviro at safm.co.za. Just quickly, a little bit of eco-info. It's Water Week coming up next week from March the 16th to the 22nd. Well, here's a little bit of a information just to alert you of its preciousness, a lesson to be learned from Brazil. In Sao Paulo, where drinking water, as it is here, is used to flush toilets, to bath, to, until very recently, to wash cars, hose down city streets and so on. Well, Brazil is a land of immense natural riches. It's uh, home to around 12% of the world's fresh water. Interesting, that. And the very idea of a water shortage there is hard for people to conceive of. Yet, despite the state government's prevarication over possible imminent rationing, consisting of two days of water followed by four days without, in reality, millions are now getting just a few hours of water every day, with many struggling with none at all for days on end. It's so scary, this story. The water crisis, or hydric collapse, as they're calling it, has left the city of 20 million people teetering on the brink. Though domestic uh, use accounts for only a fraction of the water consumed in the state of Sao Paulo, where extensive agriculture and industry places intense pressure on available resources, for the city's residents are called learning to use water wisely is suddenly the most pressing need of all. The sudden nature of the crisis has left people struggling to cope with the reality of their taps running completely dry. No state emergency has yet been declared, though it's believed to be well overdue. And in the meantime, residents of the city are making their own arrangements, storing water at home, in some cases even drilling homemade wells. Well, you know, that's one heck of a big city and it could be round the corner for us too. So I think we should just all be a little bit aware of the preciousness of water. So that's my cautionary warning today, just uh, prior to Water Week happening next week. But just on a happier note, while well, following BirdLife Africa's vote for South Africa's birds, you might remember I've been banging on about the happy hardy dar. Well, the campaign is over. Approximately 10,000 people voted. And the winner is the Cape Robin Chat. Well, it seems that of those nearly odd 10,000 odd people, 1,100 or so voted for the Cape Robin Chat. Dear little chat, popular garden bird, I believe. Other favourites were the Cape Parrot, the African Fish Eagle, the Woodland Kingfisher and the African Penguin. Oh. 
The Maribou stork, bless its heart, perhaps not our prettiest bird, only received nine votes, but I'm very pleased to tell you that the happy Hardy Bar, Hardy Dar made me just a little bit proud. He came in approximately halfway and he scored himself 86 votes. So uh, thank you very much to all those supported who supported him. Thank you from me and from him. Mammoth task if they are to entertain any chance of progressing past the pool stage. When they square up against defending champions India at Eden Park in Auckland on the 14th of March 2015. Tune in for a live crossing from 3am on your favourite radio station. Brought to you by SABC Sport. The Enviro Show. It is indeed the Enviro Show. Incidentally, if you would like to know more about that Vote for South Africa's Favourite Bird campaign, do check their site. It's birdlife.org.za forward slash vote and you can read the whole lineup and how many each and every one of them got. Birdlife.org.za forward slash vote. Well, the National Waste Summit came to a close yesterday during which Minister of Environmental Affairs Edna Molewa said... We are a throwaway society and there is need for a paradigm shift. How right she is. So how were minds shifted? Well, on the line to give us a little bit of an idea of at least how the wheels can keep on turning here in South Africa is Stacey Davidson. Stacey is Director of Redisa, Recycling and Economic Initiative of South Africa, and for whom their major concern is what to do with the millions of waste tyres that lie around the country. But uh, perhaps you can give us a bit of an overview. Hi, Stacey. Good evening, Nancy. Hi. Nice to have you with us. Stacey, were you able to attend much of the National Waste Summit? Yes, I spent three days there and had the opportunity to present the Redisa model as well as our achievements um, over the past 21 months. Hmm. Um, The Waste Summit was fantastic to attend. I'm very excited about the opportunity that we have to now start giving this very important area um, the attention that it deserves. Waste provides a huge opportunity to deal with multiple challenges that we face in the country, not only the environmental one, but also the socioeconomic challenges of high unemployment and job creation, and of course, small business development. And it is wonderful that this dialogue has begun um, and that it's being spearheaded this way. I believe at Redisa we've been saying it's time for a paradigm shift and hence the whole resource revolution that we're starting through our Waste into Worth concept. So I'm very excited to see that, you know, we're the first country to have implemented a circular economy in an industry without an industry participation. That is the tire waste management plan, which we have and which we have implemented over the past 21 months. And um, it's fantastic to see that this is now being addressed and looked at in other areas and other industries. Yes, so I think you guys have really been role models. I mean, you've, as you say, been talking about this for some time. But the National Waste Management Summit itself, it's not, it wasn't the first of its kind, was it? Well, it was the first waste summit that was mm-hmm. held. There have been many um, national waste forums. Yes. Uh, right. There have been waste uh, conferences. There have been waste horrors. And I think it's time that we needed to get to the real heart of the matter. Um, if we are going to be waging... Um, a war against waste. Firstly, we shouldn't view waste as the enemy. I think it's the generation of waste that's the enemy. 
I think it's also the fact that we cannot see, the enemy is not being able to see the potential and the opportunities in West. And I think the West Summit allowed for those kinds of um, views to be highlighted and, and for those kind of um, paradigm shifts to start taking place. Um, I think when I take a look at the resolutions, at the, the outcome of, of, of uh, the West Summit, um, industries' concerns are not too clearly articulated, other than there needs to be more private-public partnership. Um, but in general, it was very robust discussion. Um, I think it's by time we are years behind the rest of the world in terms of our um, promotion of recycling and, and, and generating opportunities through waste. Um, we have made revolutionary moves. The fact that the Minister of Environmental Affairs, in fact, appointed our um, Redisa to implement a waste tire plan of its kind, which is the first of its kind in the world, um, is, is very exciting. And I think this is why the Waste Summit is happening now. We have a model that works, that has proven to drive out exactly what it wants to achieve, which is environmental remediation, job creation, small business development. And in the 2014 year, for example, our first 12 months of, of implementation, we had set specific targets for the 2014 year and achieved, overachieved in all of them. Tonnages that we expected to remediate was about 70,000. We actually achieved 81,502 tons. Jobs created was 1,534, but we actually created 1,617. SMEs, and this is my favorite part, we thought we would only create 40 for the year. We created 162 small businesses that are sustainable and thriving. There, the number of depots we looked, collection points we, uh, or storage sites that we established, 30, and we got to 34. And even the government's target of 30% of, of the tire waste that, needs, that was being disposed of needs to be diverted into the processing and, and recycling, we achieved 32%, 2% over our target. So we're very thrilled about the outcomes, and we're looking forward to, to the next year. Yes, you certainly have done very well. You know, I, I suppose what I'm thinking is now who was at this summit? Because very often recycling has been seen as the domain of, you know, small businesses, as you just said there, schools, communities, sort of soft targets, do you know what I mean, rather than yes. big business. Were the big corporates there prepared to somehow take play their part in this? Um, well, we were there as part of a panel um, representing industry. So, yes, we had the plastics and packaging industry represented. We had the electronic waste sector represented. We had uh, light globes. We had the tire industry through Redisa being represented. We had various um, academia there, NGOs, NPOs. We had um, over... 500, or I think it was up to 800 delegates who had in fact attended, so it was well attended. Um, and there was sufficient and robust debate around turning the tide and, and intensifying this war on waste. Um, I, think, uh, I think something that, that, that I feel sort of, and, and, and you know, that we feel as Redisa that, that was lacking, was perhaps looking at, um, although we took resolutions, I think we need to take a stronger stance on the practical implementation mm -hmm. plans to actually drive this war and wage this war. Um, I think it's important that when you do embark on a war, that each of the role players understand 
who they are and what their task is. We cannot have generals only. We need lots of foot soldiers. We need generals. And so it's very important that everybody understand their roles. And I think that um, needs to be taken further in further discussions as to how do we see the role of the private sector, how do we see the role of um, government, and how do we see the role of... of, of, Civil society yeah, and, the, and the and the sorry to interrupt there, but I'm just and and of the individual because at the, the end of the day, it, you know, pardon absolutely. the expression, it, it all it comes down to each and every you. one of us. Yeah, it starts with you. The war on waste is an an individual choice. However, once we once you've made that individual choice as a citizen, you need to be aware of what is available to you and that your waste is being disposed of correctly. Yeah, and that is where we've been failing. Um, whenever you look throughout the world, even countries such as Norway, that is generally a case study that is used for the implementation of, of, of recycling industries, you actually discover that Norway is not, in fact, recycling. They may have a robust se- a separation of source um, system at home, but they are exporting their waste into Africa. So we are mm. sitting with a problem mm. of being the dumping ground. Especially, but that, especially in but terms that problem of problem poses a huge opportunity. Yes, sorry. and that is to harness waste as the resource of the future. So, if we and and this is where we have been successful in South Africa, we've done that by implementing the right kind of model. In other words, the Adisa model is the correct kind of model where you have this perfect private-public collaboration happening. The Adisa as an NPO can focus on a non-profit company, can focus on implementing to achieve the environmental targets, the job creation targets, the small business development targets, whilst industry can go on focusing on profit-making. Yeah. And they Just transfer that liability to us as a fee. So we ultimately are really an environmental insurance for industry. Mm. And we need to start understanding this recycling opportunity and the opportunity we can we can harness for the whole of South Africa, and especially to drive economic growth. Stacey, just very lastly, very briefly, a little bit shocking to hear that Norway is offloading its waste to to Africa, which is very alarming. I think, in particular, electronic waste is getting dumped in in countries who are, are not putting up a fight. But you know, when you talk about waste not being the enemy but an opportunity, a resource of the future, I suppose that's so as long as it's not toxic waste, and then we have to look at those sort of issues. But we we are out of time. But I've just got last question for you. You mentioned that resolutions were taken. I was going to say, were there any targets? its pledges, one resolution that you can share with us that was taken? One resolution, um, the resolutions were really targeted at government. Um, there were no clear goals set. I think we, we could have focused on looking at all of the legislation that has been set in the past as well as strategy and how far have we come in terms of implementing those strategies. That was not debated or discussed, and I think that is a shortcoming of the summit. Well, hopefully um, you'll put that on the agenda for next year. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Stacey, um, if anybody and would... And one of yeah. the outcomes, which was well, the resolutions, was that the Department of Environmental Affairs need to create very clear policies directing waste to energy, for example. Because if we were to just create incineration plants, we would actually be burning a valuable resource to create energy. And we should be thinking far more specifically when we look at incineration or at burning or at waste to energy projects 
to see if that is the best way to harness the value, the latent or the intrinsic value of the waste. Mm. So it's critical that we actually apply our minds a little bit more. What I would like to see going forward is, in fact, practical steps to implement this war. Yes, it sounds like that summit, wonderful as it was, it sounds like it perhaps wasn't quite long enough, but I've no doubt that you'll put all those things on the agenda for next year if indeed we can wait that long. Stacey, lastly, um, environment.gov.za. I think mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of information on that website if anybody would like to know more. Yes. Super. Thank you very much. Now you can rest after after your three <laughs> very busy days, but thanks for sharing that for right now. It's thanks a pleasure. A lot. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Stacey Davidson, very hardworking director of Redisa, that stands for the Recycling and Economic Initiative of South Africa. But do check their site, or at least the government site, it's environment.gov.za, environment.gov.za. And I think if you look around on that site, you'll find a whole lot more. It's the Enviro Show. Stay tuned. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Right, well, time for us to talk again here on the Enviro Show to Happy Kombule, who you might remember we spoke to last week. He's Policy and Research Coordinator at Project 90 by 2030. But this week, what we're looking at is we're really looking at issues to do with his own particular title there at the project. He's the Policy and Research Coordinator. So he's going to explain to us about their policy and research programme but also about an event they've got coming up on March the 17th, which is all about climate change and your role in it, my role in it, your role in it. So, got him on the line. Hi, Happy. Hi, hi, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Very nice to have you with us once again. So, Happy, just getting back to the issue of what your job description actually is, you have there at Project 90 by 2030 the Policy and Research Programme. Sounds very official. Can you just explain (laughs) it to us in words of two syllables? Basically, um, doing research and doing policy interventions that uh, fast-track the transition to a just and sustainable energy system within South Africa and looking at it with the auspice of climate change. So what I basically do is I look at the different policies that are available to South Africa and and see whether they reflect a climate change uh, idea or circumstance rather, let me put it like that. So, so those would be government policies, would they? Yeah, government policies more than anything else. But also the, 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 there are other interventions or, I'll say, plans that mm. we do have uh, that are not government-owned that also do have a bearing on what, the, what type of government policies we may have, such as uh, industry plans or even civil society plans. So your job then is to go through all those policies, whether government, governmental or none, um, yeah. just to, to query them, to challenge them, to make sure that in your or in the project's view they're on the right track? Yeah, so it's basically looking from a, the interest group of the climate justice um, lens and look at them and say, do they deal with some of the concerns that we have and do they address some of the concerns that we have? And then we give certain solutions and possible um, avenues of addressing these um, problems. Can you give us an example? Uh, one example is looking at the universal access to energy or electricity in this case. Um, for for example, South Africa's got a goal to have 97% or 100% electric, uh, households, all households electrified by 2023. Uh, some some uh, documents say 2025. But 
the idea of engaging with such a policy is to say that how can we then uh, influence governments to use renewable energy instead of using the traditional form of coal power generation, uh, electricity generation, and then using those to further that idea of having universal access. Because the idea of uh, having a policy intervention is to say that we know what the objective is, but are there other avenues much more socially available, much more environmentally friendly, much more climate justice friendly um, avenues that we can use uh, to further their policy objective of universal access. How strong is your voice? I mean, your voice as in the project's voice. If you have got alternative suggestions and you submit them, are they going to go into sort of, you know, file X or file 13 along with a whole lot of other suggestions or might they actually affect some sort of change? So some of them about some of the policy interventions that we do have are about um, maybe just to put it in, into context some of them are about actual system changes that the government can take or people can take and some of them are actual interventions like technologies that we can use that negate some of the losses or the transmission or the complexities that we have already with traditional technologies so for example if we're talking about universal access we would say that when we are generating electricity, um, we generate far more electricity than we use because we're trying to also accommodate the transmission loss that is generated from Bumalanga all the way to Cape Town. So instead of doing that, we could use uh, renewable energy that reduces transmission loss and then also deals with the point of demand. So when you want electricity, you got it when you need it. Can't help feeling that the people, you know, maybe I'm just being a little bit naive here, but the people putting together the policies should have thought of these things. Or is that really your job? Uh, <laughs> so that's a very good one. Right? Um, actually, I think it's a, it's a it's more of a team building thing. Um, yeah. We have to look at it in the sense that the policies that we do have were were put together at a certain time. And now it's a different time. I mean, some of the policies we have are from before 94. Some of them are 94, some are 2008. And the circumstances that we're in right now, and economically, socially, politically, are very different. So we have to start interrogating the policies that we have with the lens of the now, the today, and the future um, lens. Yeah, to sort of keep things up to speed, because things, as we know, are changing uh, drastically. Not least climate change, but before we get on to climate change, I, I know that the work you're doing is sort of leading up towards every year leads up to the, the next COP, you know, the next yeah. you know conference of the parties. What are you doing right now that's going to lead up to the next COP, which is where, by the way? Um, the next COP is in Paris. Okay. It's called COP21. And what we are doing is we're going through a series of uh, civil society and public engagements around the of climate change. So basically trying to say what is climate change and what is this multilateral climate change negotiation or government regime that we are trying to um, create at COP. So the the idea right now is to get as much feedback from people about what do they understand and where are the actual leverage points where we can have the most significant change in terms of climate change. Because the international negotiations put down a framework which governments are then going to use. And then governments come up with policies and legislation that inform the framework which is decided at an international level. So it, it impacts you, it impacts me, it impacts everybody. Um, how it impacts is how is, is what we have to discuss and 
what are we willing to put in and what are we willing to get out. Yes, it certainly it feels as if it's going to impact each and every one of us. But there, coming back to climate change, it's become one of those buzz phrases that is being bandied around. And there are climate people who who absolutely believe in climate change, and then, then there's a sort of climate change denialists. I mean, we know. I just I went onto Wikipedia just for sort of an overview, and it says climate change is real. It's caused almost entirely by humans and presents a potentially existential threat to human civilization. So mm. it's pretty heavy and serious stuff. Uh, in your view, can you just describe it to us or describe what it is and how we can actually get a grip to it, a grip, grip on it as ordinary you know, citizens? I think the best way for me and myself as well to understand this whole climate science is to look at it from, a, uh, from, this, from, from this view that climate change is one of the main environmental issues that we have. So it's not separate from the social and environmental issues. It's one of the most, um, one of the highly debated ones, one of the most important in some cases. But what it is, is basically a change in global climate patterns and uh, different ways in which these global patterns are reduced. So at this point, uh, we generally say that uh, man-made, meaning that post the um, since or post the industrial age, the increase or the acceleration of climate change and the, therefore the use of uh, fossil fuels have accelerated climate change. That's one way of saying it. But climate change is something that occurs because it is a, the Earth works through cycles, ecology works through cycles. Um, but the acceleration of climate change is something that has not been witnessed before in human history and it's something that we are witnessing now and it's because we humans are part of the problem uh, of, uh, well, I will not say you're off, but we're part of the problem by using fossil fuels, something that has been laid down by Earth for a while. I suppose if we were to look at a graph uh, to see the state of climate change or the increase of climate change over the last, uh, well, 50 years, but more, perhaps more especially over the last 10 years, have we seen a radical rise? Yeah. Uh, well, depending on the graph, uh, as you said, which years, uh, if it's 10 years, you could see that maybe there was a process of cooling and short little spikes um, in years. Um, like a few days ago, we had the highest temperature of, uh, in 100 years here in Cape Town. So you would see those spikes. But if you look at it from, nine, from when the industrial age began, you start to see something like an exponential growth, or maybe not an exponential growth, but uh, an inclining graph that indicates that the temperature is increasing with some plateaus, uh, but very little decline. So when you look at it, it's just increasing. The yeah. temperature is increasing, emissions are increasing, and there's a direct correlation. Some people obviously debate the correlation and causation. You know, it stands to reason, I mean, not that reason necessarily comes into this, but it stands to reason that if it's been man-made, if it's been created by man, it could be reversed by man. Have we reached any sort of tipping point? Um, <laughs> see, the, the jury on that is still out because uh, the, the IPCC, uh, the Interpanel, the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has released a few reports which state that uh, we are about to reach that tipping point, but we're not there yet. So even though we, we could cut emissions, depending on when we cut them and how much of those do we cut, we could basically be within the barriers of okay and safe. But we, on the trajectory that we're going on, we are going beyond the tipping point. And the idea that it is man-made is, is 
is a bit of a worry because what we're saying is that the acceleration is man-made, but the process itself is a naturally occurring thing. So mm. we have to distinguish between what is the influence of people or human beings and what is a natural phenomenon. Yeah, while we're busy doing that, what we need to do is deal with it. What yes. this the second event is going to be all about? It's going to bring people up to speed with climate change. It's going to make sense of international climate change negotiations. It's going to focus on what each and every household can actually do about climate change. It's happening in uh, next Tuesday, right here in Cape Town at the Two Oceans Aquarium. I'll give the details just now. Give me one thing that each and every household can do to reverse the effects of climate change. Um. I don't know about reverse, but to um, contribute to, yes. the, to, the, to the efforts yeah. of mitigation and adaptation, I think one thing we could start doing is starting to grow our own food, our own vegetables, at least something, um, and use energy more wisely. I think the idea of having lights on, it's, just, it's, it's a big thing. People don't see it as something that leads to big impacts, but... Initiatives such as Earth Hour are very big at showing that small things put together make a big impact. So using our energy more wisely, more efficiently is a big thing, and um, what we eat is very huge. Yeah, it, it is indeed. Gosh, happy. Very Two very, very simple things. I'm going to recommend that everybody go off now and switch off at least one light that is burning in yeah. their house. And tomorrow go and plant some vegetables. Happy yeah. blessings. Lovely to have you with us and look forward to chatting to you again next week. Oh, thank you very much for having me. All right, me. my dear. Take care. Right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Happy Kambule there. He is the Policy and Research Coordinator with Project 90 by 2030. Do check their site. They've got all sorts of interesting and useful information on on it, but equally, uh, if you can get yourself to the second uh, event, it's happening at the Two Oceans Aquarium Tuesday, the 17th of March, right here in Cape Town. It's uh, from half past six until two. You're listening to the Enviro Show. Stay tuned. The Enviro Show. Well, next up here on the show, it's forage time, and this time, instead of looking at how fruit or vegetables or meat or other foods are produced or reared. Today, what we're going to do is look at how salt is, well, panned, I suppose. Salt said to be both a life force and a killer, don't they say that? It's also World Salt Awareness Week from uh, yesterday through to the 17th of March. But for Samantha Skyring, salt is actually a livelihood. She's CEO, she's owner of the Oryx Desert Salt Company, where they're producing sun-dried desert salt. And we've got her on the line to tell us all. Hi, Samantha. Hello, good evening. How are you? Um, well, you must be celebrating this World Salt Awareness Week. Why should we be so aware of salt? Is it uh, a scarce resource? Are we, should we be worried about it? What's the story with Awareness Week? Uh, no, there certainly isn't a scarcity. I think the big story is really how it's harvested and the production process that it goes through. And so the end result is either a natural unrefined salt or a salt that is highly processed and refined, and what's left is a sodium chloride. So it gets all of the good stuff taken out, and it has, has some additives to it as well, which are not so good. Hmm. What's the good stuff and what's the bad stuff about, uh, about salt? Um, it, uh, the salt is obviously natural. It comes from the earth. Um, so it comes with, the sodium chloride comes with a balance of natural minerals and trace elements and they need to go together 
in order for it to be a whole food. Mm. Um, sodium, I mean, uh, our bodies require sodium chloride. It's an essential part of um, our, our tears are salty. Our sweat is salty. It's really, a re- re- I think, two-thirds a sort of saline solution. So we need to keep replenishing and replacing and balancing our own electrolytes and and the, the salt content in our bodies. That's what we replace that with that is really vital and what we really need to be aware of. Um, you you mm. say that there isn't a scarcity. I mean, when you think of it, you look at the big blue ocean and it's filled with salt. You know, it's one of the issues of desalination, I think, isn't it? Of, you know, that there would then be too much salt. But there's good ways of harvesting it and bad ways of harvesting it. You don't need to um, cast aspersions on any bad ways necessarily, but just explain to us how you harvest yours because yours is sun-dried and from the desert. Where and how? Yes, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's really a very unique source. Uh, salt pan, which is 250 kilometers north of Uppington. So it's an incredibly remote and very beautiful area. Um, very pristine, and obviously up there there's very little pollution as well. So driving from Uppington up, it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, and there's nothing but nothing. There's not a lot out mm. there. And the salt pan is a 50-square-kilometer salt pan, so 10 by 5 kilometers, so it's vast. You wouldn't see a person on the other side. And what they discovered underground is a, an underground brine lake. There's mm. 55 million tons of it. And it's fed by underground rivers. So there's obviously, in fact, if you have a look at Google Maps, there are many salt pans in that region. So there's sort of salt veins that run underground. Um, so the, these underground rivers that flow 30 to 50 meters underground are converging into this brine lake. And they're flowing over rock strata, which have been geoscientifically tested at 250 to 300 million years old. So the source of the sodium chloride and the minerals and the trace elements really is ancient and pure. So in fact, all trace elements comes from the earth, even what comes up in our, in our vegetables and our fruits. And in fact, all of the sodium chloride and the minerals and trace elements in, in, sea, in sea water actually flows down through the rivers. So what's also very unique about this particular lake is that it's 100% saturated. So sea salt is normally between 13 and 20% brine. So when they pump it up and sun-dry it, or, yeah, pump it up and dry it, mm. they actually have to build up the um, build it up until it becomes saturated in order for it to start crystallizing. With our particular brine lake that we pump up onto, onto the pan, so we've created specific pans in order to pump it up so that it can sun-dry it crystallizes in the summer in our sort of main harvest season, which is summer, where it gets to 43, 47 degrees, and it crystallizes in four weeks, which is quite awesome. It's, they're not, there are very few places um, where, <clears throat> excuse me, where salt would crystallize in such a short period. Mm. And so it comes out, there's this pure brine of sodium chloride and minerals and trace elements, gets laid out, crystallizes, and so it's... Um, all of the components are together, and from there we then sieve it in order to get the grinder salt. The only process that does happen is that we, we crush it in order to get the fine or the medium, which is what we're all used to using. So, 
Yes, lots and lots of questions in all of that. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the crystallization process sounds like it's a very natural process. It sounds like all this would be going on if there weren't any human beings around. It just happens that you're there to harvest it and crush it up a little bit and put it into your other pretty containers. But, Absolutely. Um, but, but before we get on to that, this brine lake, this massive brine lake, I'm thinking... Is that not seeping into other waters, you know, adding, because a little bit of salt goes a very long way and can, um, as it were, pollute other waters. Is, is it very isolated, this Brian Lake? No, I mean, in fact, um, uh, House Lodge, which is based in the Kalahari Transfrontier Park, which is probably still another, um, you know, 200 kilometers or so, um, apparently there the showers are salty showers. So there are brine underground brine lakes all over. This particular one just happens to be very pure. It's um, it's a, a clear, sort of rich color, whereas at Kaus Lodge, there's sort of a, br- a brownie color that comes through in the showers. So it does taint normal uh, water tables, yes. Um, it's 700 and so around 750 kilometers from the ocean, so it doesn't have anything to do with the sea. It is, the, I mean, I think underground there are many you know, rivers flowing, lakes. And in this particular region, there just seems to be a lot of salt deposits and underground salt deposits, which these particular lakes and rivers are flowing through. Samantha, I just have to ask you this because we were actually just talking earlier about the um, about the terrible fires that we've had here in the mm. Cape and water has been taken out of the sea to bomb the areas and apparently mm. that water, which is very saline obviously, is, is quite dangerous because it's killing off the boss. You know, so so salt yeah. is a sort mm. of, um, salt is a mixed blessing, isn't it? So just repeat that for me, it is a? Mixed blessing. Absolutely, yes, it is indeed. Um, yeah, it's essential. We obviously need it, and at the same time, if, you know, once I've seen documentaries where if you stuck out at sea, you don't ever drink the water because mm-hmm. it then dehydrates you. Um, and yet in Dubai, you know, there's this entire city that's based in the desert where there's no fresh water. They desalinate all the water. Yeah. So, um, yeah, salt, yeah. Is, salt is a thing. It's a study. Nonetheless, you've Indeed. made a very beautiful product out of it. So Thank I think, uh, is it available countrywide? It is, absolutely. Um, yes, and a lot of the smaller daily gourmet shops, it has also gone into the um, food lovers from Western Cape all the way up to KZN and shortly to follow through in Gauteng. Um, as well as some of the discams, so and it's fairly, fairly available. And, and the good news about it is that it does still have, as well as the sodium chloride, it has all its natural minerals and uh, trace elements. Samantha, very best of luck. I'm going to give out your website if anybody would like to know a little bit more about it and its production. It sounds like you've got lots of information there. So <laughs> thanks very Thank much you so for your much. time. Take care. Yes, thanks and you too. Likewise. Cheers. Bye. Samantha Skyring, how interesting is all that? Salt, um, what a business to be in. If you'd like to find out a little bit more it, uh, Samantha's website is Oryx Desert Salt. Oryx is O R Y X Desert Salt.co.za. Oryx Desert Salt.co.za. Well, from the cool crystalline salt pans or desert, we move to the uh, juicy world of the fruit fly. That's in our occasional bug series. 
Well, the fruit fly is a tricky little critter which impacts very negatively on the fruit industry. So what are they? Where are they to be found? And what's to be done about them? And I, th I suppose those of us who are not fruit farmers would probably not know anything at all about the fruit fly. But somebody who does is manager of Fruit Fly Africa, Nando Bard. Hi, Nando. Good evening, Nancy. How Hi. are you this evening? Very well, very, very well. Thank you very much. The fruit fly, um, fruit fly Africa, are they, uh, are they a local species? Do we have many different types of fruit fly? And are they a problem? If so, why? Um, well, in South Africa, we basically have three main types of or species of fruit fly. The biggest one will be the Mediterranean fruit fly or Ceratitis capitata. They're found pretty much all over the country. If there's a fruit nearby, you'll find the medfly also in that area. Then we have the Natal fruit fly, <clears throat> and they're more around the coastal regions of the country. And the Marula fly is mostly situated up in the northern parts of the country. And then there's a new one up to the north of us in our neighboring countries, which is called Bactericera dorsalis. Keeping a close eye on that one <clears throat> so uh, as to see whether it will move down into our country as well or not. Sure. When you say it's a new <clears throat> one, has it, is it sort of uh, recently been developed or is it morphed from other species? <laughs> no, no. It is, or it's been around in the east for quite some time now, but it's a newcomer to Africa, unfortunately. So oh, it is yeah. a bit of an invasive fruit fly for Africa at this stage. How do they arrive here? I mean, do they hitch a ride on fruit, imported fruit? I mean, how have we got, you know, the Mediterranean fruit fly <laughs> sounds suspiciously well, like it might have been a, an incomer too. Yes, actually, the Mediterranean fruit fly, um, it is a bit of a misleading name. They do originate from East Africa, actually. But they have spread all over the world to Europe, uh, Southern America, even some parts of Northern America. Um, and fruit flies, the spread of fruit flies internationally has been exacerbated by people moving around fruits all over the globe these days. Hmm. So they, clearly from the way you say that, they are a nuisance. And I think that one of the ways in which you're dealing with them <laughs> is to sterilize them en masse. Explain how that works. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe I should first explain what the problem really is with fruit flies. Mm. Um, basically, the female of the species lays her eggs in the fruit. And then when the eggs hatch, they become larvae, and that's the little worms people see in the fruit when they've gotten rotten. And they're not suitable for human consumption anymore. So in South Africa, direct damages from fruit flies, crop losses, just for the deciduous fruit industry, has been estimated to be about 90 million rand per annum. Ooh. Um, <clears throat> but that's actually not our biggest problem. As I said, the movement of fruit is what spreads this fruit fly around the globe. So our countries to which we export our fruit have very strict rules for exports into their countries, which means it's, the presence of this fruit fly can make it difficult to access new markets, and it can even cause losses of existing markets if there are too many interceptions of infected fruit into those markets. <clears throat> now, what the fruit industry has done is they basically formed this company, Fruit for Africa, 
which is a jo- uh, pu- private-public partnership between the fruit industry and the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, which runs integrated pest management programs to mitigate risks associated with these fruit flies. Um, <clears throat> sorry. One of the parts of these programs is SIT, the sterile insect technique. It's a technique in which we basically sterilize the male fruit flies using gamma radiation in their pupae form. When they hatch, we release the males. When they mate with wild females, their eggs are not viable. <coughs> Sorry. So the next generation of fruit flies are actually lowered because of all these infertile eggs laid by the wild females. Hmm. Golly. <laughs> That's really quite a story, isn't it? You know, one, once again, it's it's um, it's man messing with nature, but it, in this case, it sounds like we actually do have to be messing with nature. Otherwise, we're not going to be having any fruit worth eating. It, what you know, what, what the food chain? Where does the fruit fly fit into the food chain? I mean, if they all disappeared because they were all sterilised, we, we wouldn't see them again. Would we be upsetting any any particular balance? Well, basically not in South Africa. As I said, they're present now, but a century or so ago, they weren't present in South Africa. So it is also an invasive species for our ecosystem. Just coming back to the nasty bit where the female lays her eggs in the fruit and, um, you know, eventually when the fruit gets a bit rotten, they hatch and they wriggle out. If they don't hatch and they're still there, uh, is there any way of, of spotting that they're there? Yes. Um, once the female has stung the fruit, there will be a small hole where secondary infection of other pathogens will happen and also cause rot to the fruit. So for this first generation where she still lays the eggs in the fruit but they are not viable, you might have some damage to the fruit as well. But the thing is, over time, the subsequent generations get smaller and smaller, so less and less fruit will be stung. Fruit is a very broad term. Do they, all these different flies, the four that you mentioned, well, the marula fly, clearly that we know where that goes, but are there different flies for different types of fruit? Is it only fruit? The fruit flies don't attack vegetables as well? No, actually, there are fruit flies that attack vegetables. Um, um, but, for instance, the Mediterranean fruit fly, there are more than 250 no-nose plants for the fruit fly. Basically, if it's a berry, a fruit, or a vegetable, and it has a fleshy exterior, it will lay its eggs in that, whatever it is. Mm. Are we then, with you know, with your sterilization technique that you just described, will we, will they eventually be um, sort of wiped out, or at least certainly the invasive species, will <laughs> they be wiped out? Well, in some of our ex- uh, competing countries, what meaning competing for export into our markets, they have actually been eradicated. For instance, Chile have eradicated them about a decade ago. In South Africa, our geography is not as favorable to eradication as it was there. So we're basically going for um, population suppression in South Africa, meaning populations low enough so that the chances of any fruit flies being shipped overseas or fruit flies um, damaging the fruit 
are so low that it's basically insignificant. Yeah, I'm sure there are all sorts of rules and regulations, import rules and regulations about fruit fly and watching out for it. My goodness me, what a complex business. <laughs> and Nando, thank you very much. And uh, well, I you know I can't say that uh, you know we feel desperately sorry for the fruit fly because doing 90 million rands worth of damage to fruit. Well, I think we, we they need to go. But <laughs> thank you very much for your time. I'm going to give out your website if anybody has been fascinated like me by fruit fly and all that goes into them or out of them. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thank you very Thanks a much, lot. Nancy. Cheers. Nando Bard, he's the manager of Fruitfly Africa. Well, if you'd like to find out more, check that site. It's fruitfly.co.za, quite simply, fruitfly.co.za. Well, finally, as I say, moving on to something slightly more optimistic and happy, we're moving on to a green goodie, which is all about growing paper. Well, growing paper is the name of a little business. Not so much about trees as paper that you can actually plant from, as we understand it. We've got on the line the co-owner of Growing Paper, the business. She's uh, Nilita Knopson. I think that's how you pronounce it. Hi, Nilita. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Have I pronounced your name right? Um, Nilita Knudsen. Oh, crikey. <laughs> but it's Knudsen. all right. Okay, sorry about that. No, it's fine. Um, Nilita, tell us about Growing Paper. Um, growing Paper is a business that um, um, goes to businesses to pick up waste paper, and then we make um, handmade paper from the waste paper, and um, then we embed seeds in the paper. So, and um, after, and then you, we make products like tags, cards, notebooks, calendars, um, wedding stuff, promotional stuff. And after you've um, used your product, and you can plant your product, then either herbs or flowers or veggie seeds will, will sprout if you take good care of it. Oh, it sounds absolutely lovely. But I Thank suppose you. you just have to be very careful not to get your um, your beseeded paper slightly damp or it's going to start to sprout. Yeah, definitely. Yes. <laughs> the paper itself, you made, you, you mentioned that's handmade paper, presumably, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, our, our business is, is, is um, most, mostly um, um, everything is done by hand. And the, and the paper is made from what? Is it made from a sort of alien m- m- plant matter or what? No, it's just waste paper. Like oh, waste paper. Oh, we yes, go to okay. banks, schools, pick up waste hmm. paper everywhere we can. And then it's basically just the, the paper, the waste paper and the water that we make into a pulp. And then, yeah, that's basically the... Then we just make paper from that again. Just explain to me. I'm just hmm. sort of trying to imagine here. So you've got your very wet paper pulp yeah and at some point you need to put the seeds into it yeah uh, and they need not to be sprouting before it's dried it sounds like quite a sort of fine bit of fine tuning there yeah it is um especially in winter times we had a problem um when the paper doesn't get dry enough um quickly then the, the seeds started to sprout so um um especially last year we um, invested in a tunnel so now the paper can can actually um dry more quickly um and um, yeah, when we when we make the paper, the, it's, it's basically we use big baths to make the paper and and wooden mold mold, and then um, basically um, after you made the paper, it all goes in a press and we press out most of the water, and then it directly goes from there to to be hang up in the tunnel. So we try to to dry it very quickly. Okay, that's yeah. that's the paper process. Just coming back to the seeds themselves. Yeah. What what seeds are, did you say that you're inserting, and how and how do you harvest them, and where are you getting them from? No, we actually buy them from from um, um, a seed supplier, Balstratov. Um So we don't harvest them; we get them from them, and we mostly use seeds that's hardened, that's that's working all year round, um, 
and especially um, for the printing, we also have to use seeds that are not so big. So um, the, the main seeds that we used is, is um, mostly Alisim, um, Snapdragons. Um, we use, um, for our herb mix, we use Rocket and Basil. And then we have Indigenous flower mix also. That's African daisies and faces. Hmm. So that's the ones that we mostly use. And then we have clients that ask for uh, like, like tomato paper. Then we make yeah. tomato paper, but we test it first also. Okay, yeah, I was yeah. Thinking, because we were talking earlier to Happy Kambule from Project 90 by 2030, and we were talking about how each and every one of us could mitigate climate change, and he said, well, let's start growing food. So could you um, could you put, you know, I mean, rocket and basil tomatoes, could you put other seeds, I don't know, pumpkin seeds in it, or, I don't know, other other sort of vegetable seeds? Yeah, definitely, the ones that are... Um they are small enough, yeah. Okay. And then I think the object is that we say, for instance, you've um, you've made somebody's uh, wedding invitations with, yeah. let's say, tomatoes for argument's sake, then the people who've received the wedding invitation after the wedding's over, yeah. they can go and plant it in their garden. Yeah. Rather than throw it away yeah. <laughs> in the dustbin, yeah. yeah. They go and plant it. And, yeah, they also, um, especially what we've done in the past now, we have um, some um, um, funerals that we've done. And we make a little bookmark, and then um, that's a great idea for me. Then we say on the bookmark, um, in remembrance of this person, plant this garden, and see the flowers bloom, and remembering by that. Um, so that's a nice idea for me, yeah. Um, Gosh, with, I, yes, yeah. I suppose it's in a graveyard. You could plant the plant it near where they're buried. Yeah. Oh dear me, what a what a touching thought. So the so you put it into the ground. What do you, what do you do? Just sort of add a, a layer of a thin layer of soil over it, or did you have to dig it right down? Yeah, we mostly um, when we test it, we we mostly um, um, put it in a in a console um, pot, or we just um, germinate it in a little saucer, perhaps, um, and and something that can stay moist. So then um, then, then when it grows, it, we, we plant it over later. In the stadium, but you can. But we, the instructions that we put on the back of our cards, we say you you wet the card, you wet the soil, and then you put the um, the wet card on top of the soil, and you mm-hmm. just sprinkle some soil on top of it, basically. Okay. Yeah, and then you just have to keep it wet. Yeah. Right. Does it matter what time of the year it is? Yeah, we try to use the seeds. That's that's also. Oh, you mentioned that could your, be your, um, the whole year. Yeah. yeah. So if people want to have their invitations or their funeral invitations or whatever it may be, um, you take special orders. What sort of quantity can you produce? Uh, we've, we've done big quantities. Um, yeah, we've done thousands and thousands of quantities mm. before. Yeah, so now we can do big, big quantities. Wow. Do, do you do yeah. whole books? What book? Uh, can you do a whole book? Um, yeah, we can. We, well, yeah. The paper is just a little bit, um, it's, it's not like thin, thin paper, yeah. so it's a little bit, the texture Bulky. is a little bit different, mm. um, but we can definitely make books. Um, yeah, we just have to, to get someone to, to bind it for us, but we can definitely, do, we, we make notebooks Yeah. So and calendars and stuff like that. Well, it sounds like there's pretty much not much that you couldn't do. Nalita, thank you very much. Very That's best of luck. Growingpaper.co.za is your website. Yeah, thank you very Lovely. much. You take care. Thanks a okay, lot. Okay, thank you. Well, there you go. There's a novel idea if you're wanting uh, something to, that you can send and it will grow. Growingpaper.co.za. Growingpaper.co.za.
city. Incidentally, don't forget that the Enviro Show is podcast. If you'd like to hear that whole story about the fruit fly all over again, Whew, what a story. Uh, check it out. Go to the SAFM website, safm.co.za, and go down to podcasts, and there you'll find us. Thanks very much to the team. That's Rob Parkin and Kim Winter, and I'm Nancy Richards, and uh, I'll be back again on Sunday with SAFM Literature. But right now, it's time to hand over the battle to Stephen Kirker. Hi, Stephen.